Your Bibles were in 1 John chapter 1. Please turn there. And the title of the message this morning is A Thesis of Light and Darkness. Has anyone here had to write a doctrinal thesis? How about for your master's degree? How about for the kid in your class that was bigger than you? No? A thesis is a statement or a theory that is put forward as a premise to be either maintained or proven. And in verse 5 of our text this morning, John makes what I would consider a thesis statement. It is very direct, it is very distinct, and very specific. Verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. After the thesis statement is made, he then goes to three statements to prove his thesis true. And in those three statements that he follows his thesis with, we find questions of examination to allow the Scriptures to search our heart to see if we are truly in Christ or not. That is the purpose of our study of 1 John in a series that we've entitled That You May Know. We want to know for sure that we are truly saved, truly in the body of Christ, truly destined for heaven. The moment I close my eyes here, I will open them in the Lord's presence for all eternity in heaven. Today, there are many who would claim to be Christians, and yet their life, the manner in which they conduct their life, would deny or negate that statement. And the Bible is true when it states that one who is truly saved will change the manner in which they conduct their lives. There's no way you can't. Every individual that ever had a God experience was radically changed from that point going forward. Moses, when he saw God, went from this man that looked like Charlton Heston to a man that looked like Rip Van Winkle. When Isaiah saw God, he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips when he was brought into the reality of his sin before a holy and pure God. Even when Peter interacted with Jesus, he knew that he was in the presence of one who was greater than him. And Peter said, I am not worthy that you were to come upon my boat. You cannot remain the same if you are truly born again. And yet feel, many feel very comfortable that as long as I believe in Jesus, I then am confident that I'll go to heaven and whatever else happens, happens. And it's not really important that I follow the teaching of the Word of God or follow the instructions of our Lord. It's not really important that I do that. Now I want to be clear here because I think I need to state this very often. We are not... Uh, proponents of a works relationship with God. We are, not, we are not stating at all that you are saved by your works. That's not what we are saying. But what we are saying is that one who is truly saved by faith, their works will change. And it won't be overnight. They're not going to be perfected in a day or a week or a month. But their life will begin to change. And over a long period of time in hindsight, you should be able to look back and say, you know what? Ever since I came to Christ, I've never been the same person since. And I believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches. 
that after coming to Christ, we will not be the same person that we were previously. And John wrote this letter that we may know that we have eternal life. So it's in a very examinating letter. It, it, it's provoking because it causes one who reads it to think and to consider, am I truly saved? For John told us very clearly in 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, underline that word, know, know for sure that you have eternal life. The other day, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic. I know I'm not old enough to feel that way. But as Dean and I have been preparing our daughter to leave for college in August, um, just looking back, don't know where the last 18 years have gone. You know, I know many of you here in the church remember when Dean and I came and announced that we were pregnant and and uh, now she's going off to college. So I, I, I went and I found a photo album and I started looking through it. And I'm not going to tell you if I cried or not, but you can only imagine. And I noticed something, you know, it's, you don't have to guess if Autumn is my and Dina's daughter, do you? When she was born, she looked exactly like me. And I began to pray earnestly, Lord. But as she grew up, she became more and more beautiful as she looked more and more like her mom. And I saw that in her, I mean, no one could doubt that she was our kid. My parents made that statement. Dina's parents made that statement. It was just obvious from the beginning. She, the facial features and so on and so forth. In fact, when the first ultrasound was taken of Autumn, the first thing we noticed were her cheeks that are just like mine, you know. And I'm like, that's my, that's my little girl. First John is like a photo album. It explains our Heavenly Father and His characteristics and then says that children of Him may need to carry those same characteristics within them. We should resemble Him. Uh, People should look at us and say, oh yeah, they're Christians. Their Father is God. Not by the way we look, but by the way we act and conduct ourselves. As one wrote, he said this, he says, First John is an epistle like a family photo album. It describes those who are members of the family of God, just as children resemble their parents, so God's children have his likeness too. This letter describes the similarities. When a person becomes a child of God, he receives the life of God, that is eternal life. And all who have this life show it in very definitive ways. That's so true. We should resemble the characteristics of our Heavenly Father. So as we proceed this morning, we are now going to substantiate the thesis statement in which John makes here in verse 5. But let us look at John 5 to understand the statement that he is truly making. Verse 5. Again, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. One of the three God is statements found in the book of 1 John. They are fundamental, they are foundational to everything that John is writing. And when he uses this statement in the Greek, what he is saying is that he what he is saying is that God is the originator of light, meaning that light could not exist if it were not for God. 
It's not that he is just a part of light or light uh, comes you know, from him or through him. It lights originates in him. He is light. This is where light originates from. If you go back to the book of Genesis, when light was first introduced, it was the light of God himself that illuminated his creation until the sun and the moon and so forth were created. These God is statements are the building blocks of this letter. And as we will discover, John will build these thesis statements based upon those fundamental characteristics of God. There are three. I've given you one. Your assignment for next week is to find the next two. This is the message that he proclaims. It's the message that he saw from the very beginning. Again, as we established last week, John's instructor was Jesus himself. He interacted with Jesus personally, and he is now imparting to us that in which he has learned from Jesus from the beginning. For in his first gospel, John 1, 4 through 5, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is this light? What is meant by light? It refers to God's perfect righteousness, His perfect holiness that can only be found in Him and Him alone. Again, the originator of light, this perfection that we cannot even comprehend in our fallen state. And then there's a second part of this thesis. Not only is God light, but then he puts this definitive statement at the end of his thesis that is, in him is no darkness at all. And in the Greek, this carries what is called a double negative. There is no darkness in him at all, at all possible. It's impossible for there to be any darkness within him. And this is the statement that John is making and proclaiming to us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As William MacDonald wrote in his commentary, by this he meant that God is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, and absolutely pure. God cannot look with favor on any form of sin. Nothing is hidden with him, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. In the state of perfection, he cannot bear upon favorably any type of sin. And therefore, we ascertain from that that all things are open and naked before him, so it is impossible for us as individuals to hide anything before God. As the psalmist wrote, he said, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The writer of Hebrews went on to say, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. So this light, this purity, this righteousness, this holiness that originates in God, so permeates us as individuals that all sin is uh, revealed within it. 
That's a pretty sobering thought in and of itself. That all things are open and naked unto God. And these things will be given account for. We cannot hide anything from God. And John is saying this is all open before God. And therefore he then brings us into his support statements that are very, very provocative for you and I as they search our hearts from the interior on out. He will ask the question, are you aware of the light, number one? Are you aware of the light, number one? Number two, are you aware of your sin? Number two, are you aware of your sin? And number three, are you aware that God, through God, you can be forgiven? Let us take a look at the first of these statements found in verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, and that is in the continuous tense, and we continue walking in darkness, what does He say? We what? Lie. To who? That's an interesting question. We can't lie to God because God sees everything as it is. So we aren't lying to God. We may be able to lie to others, but often it is others who see our, uh, us as we truly are. Who do we lie to the most? Ourselves. The greatest lies that we have ever told undoubtedly have been lies that we have told ourselves that we have allowed to justify our behavior, that we have allowed to um, uh, appease our conscience, these lies that we tell ourselves that end up deceiving us and bringing us into utter destruction in the wake of, uh, at the end. But we lie, he says, and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The Bible clearly teaches that it's inconsistent for an individual who has received Christ as their Savior, been born again, to continue walking or living as they did previously in their old life. That's a foreign concept to the Bible. The Bible is not stating that we, from the moment of our salvation, the moment of our, uh, of our conversion to Christ, are needing to be perfect. That's impossible. But for us to continue in day by day in our old life, would indicate to the writers of the New Testament that we truly have not been saved in Christ. That's exactly what they're saying. That a true believer in Jesus Christ will radically be changed by the work in which the Holy Spirit has begun to do in them. Remember what God said. He said that the work that He has begun in you, He will be faithful to complete in you. That he is the author and the finisher of our faith. There's a work going on in the lives and in the heart of every Christian and in the mind of every Christian that is bringing that individual into the image of Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification. It's taking us from who we once were before Christ and bringing us into the image of Christ. 
It is a work of the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us to that place. But God says that He works in you not only to do, but to will to do. So He changes our hearts so that we want to and desire to be obedient to the Word of God. And that change of heart indicates that we truly have radically been changed and therefore we can truly know that we've been saved. Now the sanctification process is a process. It goes over many months, many years, many decades, and so forth. But God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us, and therefore He will bring us into this likeness of Christ as He is working through His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But faith in God that does not bring this kind of transformation, James labeled that type of faith dead meaning it had no ability to save anyone. In our culture, it's extremely unpopular today to challenge someone's opinions or beliefs, isn't it? Even though they cannot substantiate their opinions, even though they cannot give good evidence for the reasons why they believe what they believe, the fact of the matter is, since they believe it, and since it is their opinion, it is as sacred as the Word of God. I challenge that. Because there are many who would maybe embrace the idea and believe in Jesus, but it has no effect upon their life. It's merely academic knowledge. Now, I'm not the one who was the um, originator of this idea. If you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. Looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, which we looked at several weeks ago, but I want to look at it again for our time together. The Jewish believers in Jesus were wrestling with their newfound faith. And they were wrestling with the idea of the faith that they had in Jesus not having any effect upon their life. I argued that anything that we truly believe has an impact upon our lives. For example, I held up a bottle of water. And if you believe in water, you're going to act accordingly towards your interaction with water. What do I mean by believing in water? What a, Pastor, what are you telling us now? I have to believe in the water bottle? No. But if you do, you're going to handle water properly. You cannot believe in water and not handle it properly because then you don't believe in water. I believe in water that after I get done working out or running or doing something out in the hot sun and I need to rehydrate myself, I can turn to this and it will satisfy my thirst. It will rehydrate me. It will keep me healthy by having an adequate supply of water each and every day. However, though... I also believe in this water enough to know that when I am really, really thirsty, I should not go out to the hose, put the hose in my mouth and just turn the water on and just sit there for 15 minutes. There's an effect of water called drowning. So therefore, I approach water in a certain manner. It it gives me the allowance to approach it and to use it in a positive way. And my belief in water also gives me the uh, understanding that there are some things prohibited in my interaction with water. Now this is water. How much more 
Should our faith and belief in Jesus Christ change us if we are truly talking about interacting with the God of all the universe? Think about that for a moment. And for one to say that they have this belief in God and have no impact upon their life, I would say, I don't know what God you believe in, but it's not the God of all the universe. Because when someone interacts with Him, their lives are radically changed. Look at what James wrote. Let's read this quickly together. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And we talked about what he means here. It means, can this type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Do you really want them to go in peace? Do you really want them to uh, be warmer, you're just saying, go away, I don't want to deal with you. That's what he's saying here. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If this faith that you have doesn't play out, then it's simply dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And his, James writes, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. There's that simple academic knowledge. You believe that God is one. It is true of his character. He says you do well. But then he goes on to say, even the demons believe and shudder at such an idea. That's what he's stating. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And that's the premise in which we are operating from. A true believer in Jesus Christ will reflect their God. They will begin to resemble Him. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The letter of Ephesians is written in such a dynamic way that the first three and a half chapters are all theological and they're completely revealing of the character and the nature of God. The last three chapters of the letter are now written in a practical application of everything that he has just taught us. And he begins that practical application by stating, now walk worthy of it. The word worthy of it is not meaning that you are earning it. It, 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 The word worthy there means that you uh, have received it and in your gratitude of it, you are living according to God's desire. But then in contrast, look at verse 7 of 1 John as we go back to our text. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is saying that if we do walk in the light then we do have fellowship one another. And it's debated over what is meant by that, but I think the logical uh, interpretation of that phrase in the context of the letter would be referring to the relationship or the fellowship between the individual and God. 
If you are walking in the light according to the knowledge of Christ and that, has re- that He has revealed to you, and you are living in accordance with that, then you can be confident that you have fellowship with God and that you can be confident that your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I can, if I am walking in accordance to the way God would have me to walk, and again, I am not a, I'm not a proponent of a works relationship. What I am saying is it's an outworking of our relationship in the characteristics and in the actions of our life. We can be confident. Just as one who is lying to themselves who continues in darkness, you who continue walking in the light, you can be confident that you have fellowship with God and that your sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. As one wrote so eloquently, he said, John's point is that if a Christian live in the light where God is, then there is mutual fellowship between himself, that is God, and them. That is that they have fellowship with him and he has fellowship with them. The light itself is the fundamental reality which they share. Thus, true communion with God is living in the sphere where one's experience is illuminated by the truth of what God is. It is to live open to his revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. Now, if I may, let's get a little technical today, right? Because we promise that we'll never dumb it down for you here at Calvary Chapel. There's a phrase here that's so encouraging that you might miss it if you don't fully understand it. And I want to just bring it to your attention because I want you to fully uh, appreciate what, God, what John is writing here. Notice that he starts verse 7, but if we walk in the light, and he does not write, walk according to the light. Walking according to the light would mean that we have to walk in utter perfection all the time. That's an impossibility. Walking in the light, as one has stated, it is significant that John talked of walking in the light rather than according to the light. To walk according to the light would require sinless perfection and would make fellowship with God impossible for sinful human beings. But to walk in it, however, suggests instead openness and responsiveness to the light, meaning that we are in the light and now we can choose to obey or not to obey. We can live by it or walk away from it. It's not that God is asking us to live to perfection to show that we are saved. He's saying this, we walk in the knowledge of who Christ is. It will gradually change us as we continue to be obedient and resist the temptation to be disobedient to you. That is why sanctification can be hindered by the individual. As we submit to Christ, we then submit to his word, we submit to his, the Holy Spirit, and we offer the least amount of resistance to change. But if we harbor sin, if we resist that change, then we are stifling that process And God will turn up the heat. He brings about trials and tribulations that will allow for correction because, again, he loves us too much uh, to leave us the way he found us. And so, therefore, 
He allows for that work in progress. He allows for that personal devotion unto God. He allows for that heartfelt relationship. And in the light of everything that he has done for us, as Paul said, it is only our reasonable service that we lay ourselves as living sacrifices before him. As we have stated, there are two concepts found in verse 7. That if we walk in the light, we can be confident, number one, of our fellowship with God, and number two, to our sins being cleansed by Jesus Christ. This will lead to an assurance of our salvation. That's the way in, in which he hopes this is read. As one wrote, Dr. John Wolverd, so long as there is a true openness to the light of divine truth, Christian failures are under the cleansing power of the shed blood of Christ. Indeed, only in virtue of the Savior's work on the cross can one be any, can there be any fellowship between imperfect creatures as us and an infinitely perfect God. So as he said, the first question that we are f- confronted with, are you aware of the light? Number two, are you aware of your sin? Verse eight, look at this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. This is so important. For you to grasp. Have you acknowledged before yourself and before God that you have sinned before a holy God? What does it mean to sin? It means to miss the perfection of God. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. It means to miss the mark. It means one who shoots an arrow and misses the target altogether. It means one who is not perfect before one who is perfect. Again, the standard of that perfection being God himself. The Bible says that there's two types of sin. There's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. Sins of omission is when God tells us to do something and we do not do it. Sins of commission is when God tells us not to do something and we do it. And these sins can present themselves in different ways in the life of the believer. Through thought and of action. Our thought life is scrutinized just as closely as our actions are before God. As Jesus said, if you looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. These sins can be private, behind closed doors, or they can be open in public. As the Proverbs writer stated, whoever conceals his transgressions, I want you to really write this down, memorize it. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Within our culture today, we have done everything that we possibly can from a secular perspective to eliminate the concept of sin altogether. We have truly stated that the fundamental essence of an individual is that of being good. 
And then through experiences, circumstances, and environment, that individual then becomes bad. It's the premise of all psychology today. It's the premise that we approach an individual upon with the belief that everybody is born good. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that we're all born into sin. And as a result, we sin because of our sinful nature. If we want to operate from the premise that all are good, then we're going to be looking at outward circumstances and events and so on and so forth that then shape them and mold them into something that they were not meant to be. However, though, if we operate from the premise that they were born in sin and sin comes naturally to them, then we're going to look at it from a completely different perspective. But think about our culture today. Think about how individuals have completely justified their actions and therefore dismiss any real understanding of guilt and shame because of those things in which they have done. Look at how the consciences of individuals are so seared today that the most heinous crimes can be committed at the hands of another human being. Think of the fact that even today our judicial system has been persuaded in this belief and how today we are not meeting the punishment to equal the crime. It's not that we are too severe, it's that often we are too lax. And why is it then that our rehabilitation process is so faulty that the vast majority of criminals go and repeat their crime again? It's because we're operating from the wrong premise. Today, if you say to someone or talk to them about their sin, their immediate justification is to compare themselves to people who are much worse than they are, to make them look all that much better in your sight and for that conversation. And I love the fact that they always pick Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, or the serial killer of their choice. They never even come close to trying to uh, mirror themselves against anyone who would challenge their standard of morality. We've told the world today that they can decide what their standard of morality is, therefore fulfilling what the Bible says, that all are doing right what's in their own eyes. Folks, we are in trouble. We are telling God as a nation, as a society, we have not sinned. Deceiving ourselves and calling God a liar in the process. Are you aware of your sin? To help you be aware of it, all you have to do is first and foremost compare yourself to the perfection of God. It'll become all too clear to you how sinful you actually are. But if you need a more, maybe what I would call tangible manner in which to understand the seriousness of sin, then I need to remind you of that in which God needed to do to overcome your sin before him. And that was the slaughter of his only begotten son. When I talk with individuals and they don't understand the seriousness of sin and they don't understand what God has done on their behalf, I would often encourage them to watch the passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson nailed it in that aspect of that movie. The slaughter that our Savior went through to cover and to wash away, I should say, our sins completely. 
If sin is not serious before God, then Jesus' prayer in the garden that night before when he said, Father, if there be any way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But the Father didn't take the cup away from him, did he? The next day he went to the cross and suffered the incredible abuse that which he did. Let us understand the seriousness of sin and the seriousness that God went to to alleviate our debt before him, our guilt before him, our conviction before him in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us be real about that. That when we sin as individuals, we thank our Savior for the fact that as he had just said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He could have never said that to us if he wouldn't have gone to the cross for us. Let's be honest about that. We have sinned before God. And we've sinned greatly before God. I used to be an avid news watcher. I look at very little news today because sometimes I just can't stomach it anymore. And one day as I was praying and in my devotions, God reminded me that this is only what is visible to us that we are seeing that's making us so nauseated today. And he says, Eric, I see everything. I see everything. And I sent my son as the greatest act of love that anyone who would turn to him and believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We are dead, right, guilty before God in our sin. And we walk about in our audacity, in our pride, in our arrogance, with our hands raised to God, flaunting our sin before Him. In parades of pride across the nation, we flaunt our sins before Him, adopting a, 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 a symbol of, uh, of recognition, uh, the rainbow that was meant to say no more judgment as they flog it before God. God, let's be real, guys. This is what our nation has come to. We need to repent, guys. We need to get right with God. We need to understand that even in His He looks upon us and he continues to be long-suffering, loving, graceful to us. He continues to bless us even when we don't deserve it at all. He does so. Man, we need to turn back to God and we need to turn back to him quickly. I'd like to read this to you if I may. Thus we see that fellowship with God does not require lives of sinfulness but rather requires that all of our sins should be brought out into his presence, confessed and forsaken. It means that we must be absolutely honest about our condition and that there should be no hypocrisy or hiding of what we really are. If we are willing to do that, God is willing to respond in the way that he is going to. In a trustworthy, justified manner, he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness and bring us back to that place of purity, alleviating our guilt, not before man, but before him who is first and foremost. So number two, are we aware of our sin? If we are, we will deal with that sin accordingly. But if we staunchly deny that we have sinned, 
then we, make, we deceive ourselves and make God a liar. And then John says, are you aware that there is forgiveness for sin? Look with me in verse 10, if you will. Now, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He says, oh, my little children. Remember, the chapter breaks and verses are not inspired. Sometimes they chop up the thought. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, and he's speaking to believers that may have now been convicted in their heart after reading what they have just read. They now realize that they have sinned before God and they now need to know what God has done on their behalf to alleviate that sin, to allow them to have comfort in verse 9 when it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look with me, he says. He says, to us who have sinned, who are truly in Christ, he's talking to us who are believers. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. The word advocate is not used in our society any longer in the context that it was back or in the manner in which it was back in the culture that it was originally written here in our text. We have substituted the word lawyer, one who stands before you Uh, in a court of law, as you stand before a judge, he represents you and he argues on your behalf. The advocate that John is speaking of here is much more formal than our simple understanding of a lawyer today. An advocate in that culture and um, that John is referring to is more of us standing guilty before a tribunal of royalty. And an advocate on our behalf could not just be any uh, individual that we happen to find on a billboard or in the phone book or on a TV ad. It had to be someone of royalty also that could stand up on our behalf and intercede on our behalf and to plead for us on our behalf. It would have to be someone of the royal court themselves to allow this to happen. And John is saying to those of us who are in Christ that know that we have sinned and now need to understand that we have an advocate, we need to understand that that advocate is certainly part of the royal court as he is the second person of the Trinity. He stands there before us and God the Father looking through us, I'm sorry, looking through Christ, sees us forgiven. As we are standing there in the tribunal before God, we are guilty in our sins. The great prosecutor is leveling an argument against us, Satan himself, pointing to our faults, making the argument that is so true. Satan making the argument before God, God, if I have sinned because of my pride and you have cast me out of your presence into the depths of hell, why should you not do the same for Eric here. And as I stand there, guilty in my sin before the Father, fully convicted righteously by Satan himself because I have sinned against God, as I stand there completely incapable 
of defending myself before a perfect and holy God, one steps up from the royal court himself. He places himself between myself and the Father, and he says, Father, he is one of mine. I have paid for him by his blood. By my blood, I should say. And the Father looks through Christ at me and sees me perfect in Jesus Christ. And he throws the gavel down and he says, not guilty, innocent of all charges before Satan himself. That's our advocate. One of the high court himself who stood on our behalf. But not only is he our advocate, notice how John then concludes. Verse 2. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation there is a word that, again, we are not familiar with. As Jesus is our advocate, as he's demonstrated on behalf of Peter in Luke twenty-two, thirty-one and 32, when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. As one wrote, he says, eternal life is fully guaranteed to those who have trusted Jesus for it. But the consequences of a believer's failure his restoration, and future usefulness are all urgent matters which Jesus takes up with God when sins occur. That's the advocacy. But now we need to understand the propitiation. It's not that he just advocates for us. Is that his life, his blood, paid a debt that I could not pay and washed me away of all my sin and guilt. He then clothed me with his righteousness so I would be perfect before God the Father. He's done both of that on my account. And then yet he's done one more thing more. This blows me away. He then took me from, for, after purchasing me back from God the Father for my sin and for my guilt and my unrighteousness, giving me his righteousness in return. Do you know what he does next as propitiation? He takes me from that place of of redemption and he walks me over to the place of adoption. Not only does he redeem me, but then he takes me and he brings me to the place of adoption and says, now you're part of the family. Now you're one of God's kids, a prince and princess, each one of us who are in Christ Jesus, cleansed permanently from our sins, past, present, and future. And now we have rights in Christ that we never had before, being able to go into the throne room of God at any time to find help and grace in our time of need. Let us understand that not only is he our great advocate, but he's our propitiation for sins, and not only ours alone, but for the whole world. This is one of the verses that tells me that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is meant to be offered to everyone, and everyone has the ability to accept or refuse that offer of grace. No one is excluded. 
All are welcomed at my Father's table, as God desires all to be saved. That's what he's saying here. Notice he says it very clearly, that this payment was not only for us, but for the sins of the entire world. Everything that can and needs to be paid for can be paid for in Christ. If that person will come to him and accept him and repent of sins, he will pay their debt for them. It's not automatically applied. He is not supporting universal salvation. He is basically stating that it is effective to cleanse every sin that has ever been committed. But as one summed up this idea of propitiation, he said this, This means that by dying for us, he freed us from the guilt of our sin and restores us to God by providing the needed satisfaction and by removing every barrier to fellowship. God can show mercy to us because Christ has satisfied the claims of justice. It is not often that an advocate or lawyer pays for his client's sins. Yet this is what our Lord has done. And most remarkable of all, he paid for them all by the sacrifice of himself. So as we now conclude, the thesis that John put forward is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he says, those who walk according to darkness are lying to themselves, but to those who are walking in the light, they can be confident that they have fellowship with God and fellowship, I'm sorry, fellowship with God and that their sins are cleansed. To those who say they have no sin, you deceive yourself and you make God a liar. So number two, are you aware of your sin before God? If you are, then understand that if you confess your sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we have sinned and our heart is grieved over it, please let us know that in Christ we have an advocate a propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but that of the whole world. That's who Jesus is.